This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. This week, I chat with Goiko Adzik about how serverless fits into the cyclical nature of the industry. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 97. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, my guest is Goiko Adzik. Hey, Goiko, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for inviting me. So you are a partner at Nuri Consulting. You're an AWS serverless hero. You've written, I think, what, 6,842 books or something like that about technology and serverless and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just, I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background and, uh, and sort of what you've been working on lately. So I'm a developer, I started developing software when I was kind of six and a half. My dad bought a Commodore 64 and I think my mom would have kicked him out of the house if he told her that he bought it for himself. So it was officially <laughs> for me. Nice. Um, and I was the only kid in the neighborhood that had a computer but didn't have any ways of loading games on it because he didn't buy it for games. So kind of I stayed up and uh, copied and pasted Peaks and pokes in you know a book I couldn't even understand until I made the computer make weird sounds and print rubbish on the screen, um, and th that's my background basically. I've been ever since I I only wanted to build software really. I didn't have any other hobbies or anything like that. Um, currently, I'm building a product uh, for helping tech people who are not video editing professionals create videos very easily. Um, previously, I've done a lot of work around consulting. I've built another product that is used by millions of school children worldwide, um, collaborate and, and brainstorm through mind mapping. And um, since kind of 2016, most of my development work has been on Lambda and on kind of serverless themed stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, and I joke a little bit about the, the the number of books that you wrote, but the ones that you have, uh, one of them is called Running Serverless. Uh, I think that was maybe two years ago. Um, that uh, is an excellent book for people getting started with serverless. Um, and then one of my favorite books is Humans versus Computers. Um, I just love that sort of collection of tales of like all these things where um, humans just build really bad interfaces into software and like just well, things go terrible. Thank you very terribly. much. I enjoyed writing that book a lot. Um, yeah. And I, one of my passions is kind of finding edge cases. I think mm. people with a slight OCD like to find edge cases. And uh, in order to be a good developer, I think kind of somebody really needs to have a kind of that, that kind of intent and really look for, look for edge cases everywhere. And I think um, collecting these things and, and was my idea to help people, first of all, think about building better software and to realize that stuff we might glance over like, oh, nobody's ever going to do this actually might cause right. hundreds of millions of dollars of damage 10 years later. Right. And yeah, uh, no. thanks, thanks very much for kind of yeah. liking the book. 
No, and if people if people haven't read that book, um, I don't know when did that come out? Like maybe 2016, 2015? Uh, yeah, five five or six years ago, I think. Yeah, I, I, it's still completely relevant now, though. And I, there's just so many great examples in there. Um, and I don't want to spend the whole time talking about that book. But if you haven't read it, go check it out because it's these crazy things like police officers ent entering in like no plates whenever they're giving parking tickets, and then somebody who actually gets that ends up with like thousands of parking tickets, and it's just crazy stuff like that, or or not using a middle initial or something like that for the name or the birth date or whatever it was and uh and, and people uh you know constantly getting like just uh, it, it's a fascinating book so definitely check that out but um speaking of sort of edge cases and and just all this experience that you have you know just sort of dealing with um you know this this idea of uh i guess like you know, finding the problems with with software, or maybe even better, I guess a, a good way to put it is finding the limitations um, that we sort of build into software, uh, mostly unknowingly, like we do this, you know, sort of unknowingly. Um, and you and I were having a conversation the other day, and we were talking about like, way, way back in the 1970s. Now, I was I was born in the, in the late 70s, so I'm I'm old, but hopefully not that old. Um, but way back then, time sharing was a thing um, where we would basically have just a few large computers and we would have to borrow time against them. Um, and and there's a parallel there to sort of what we were doing back then. And I think what we're doing now with cloud computing, do you have, I, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah I think absolutely. I, we, we are, I think going in a slightly cyclic way here, maybe not cyclic, maybe it's spiral. So we, you know, we came to the same horizontal position, but vertically we're slightly better than we were. <laughs> right. And if you look at, I mean, again, I, I didn't start working then. I'm, I'm kind of like you. I was born in late 70s, so I wasn't there when people were doing punch cards and massive mainframes and time sharing. My first experience came from, you know, home PC computers and, and later PCs. But um, I think uh, the, the whole serverless thing, people were disparaging about that when uh, the, the marketing buzzword came around. I, I don't remember exactly when serverless became serverless uh, because we were talking about microservices and, and right. Lambda was a way to run microservices and execute code on demand. And all of a sudden, I think the JAWS people realized that JAWS is a horrible marketing name and decided to rename it to serverless, I think, right. Austin Collins. And, and, and it was probably what, 2017 or something like that. 2000, something like that. Yep. Something like that. Yep. And then because it is a horrible marketing name, but you know, it's, it's catchy, it caught on. And then people were complaining how it's not serverless, it's just somebody else's servers. And I, I think there's some truth to that, but actually it's not even somebody else's servers. It really is somebody else's mainframe in, in a mm, sense that, right. you know, in, in the seventies and, and early eighties before the PC revolution, um, if you wanted to be a, a small software house or a small so small product operator, you probably were not running your own data center. What you would do is you would rent it based on paying for time to, to one of these massive, massive, massive operators. And, and in fact, um, you know, we ended up with AWS being a massive data center. As far as you and I are concerned, it's just a blob. It's not a collection of computers. It's a... Right data center we rent something from and Google is another one and, and Microsoft is another one. And I remember reading a book about Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel, where they were thinking about the market for PC computers in, in the late 70s, when somebody came to them with the idea that they could repurpose 
what became a, a 8080 processor. So the first kind of, the, you know, they, they, they were doing this, I think, for some Japanese calculator. And then somebody said, well, we can, we can attach a screen to this and make this a universal computer, you know, and sell it. And they realized maybe there's a market for four or five computers in the world like that. Right. <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, we ended up with four or five computers. It's just the definition of a computer changed. Right, right. Yeah, and I actually think that I I think that's a good good point because like you you think about when uh, you know after the PC revolution once you know the the web started becoming really big I mean people started building data centers and co-location facilities like crazy this was way before the cloud um, and and everybody was buying racks and you know Dell was getting really popular because people buying servers from Dell and installing these places uh, or installing these in, in their uh, in their data centers and doing this um, and it just became this massive you know it was the whole industry uh, built around just you know doing that and then you have these few companies that say well what if we just handled all that stuff for you um, you know rather than just racking stuff for you but started managing the software and started managing the networking and and the and the backups and all this st stuff for you and that's sort of where the cloud was born but I think you make a really good point where like you know the cloud whatever it is Amazon or, or Google or whatever um, you know you might as well just assume that that's just one big piece of processing that you're renting and you're renting some piece of that and so maybe we have, maybe we've moved back to this idea where, I mean, even though everyone's got a you know massive computer in their pocket now, uh, or you know tons of compute power, in terms of the real sort of business work that's being done and the real sort of I guess global value and and the things that are powering global commerce and everything else like that, those are those are starting to move back to run in four or five massive computers. I mean, and you know, they, they, again, there's there's a cyclic nature to all of this. I uh, remember reading about the advent of kind of um, uh, power networks. Mm -hmm. Because um, before people had electric power, um, there were, you know, physical machines and, and movement through physical power and uh, there were water powered plants and things like that. And these whole systems of, of shafts and belts and things like that powering factories. And, and you had this one kind of power node in a factory that was somewhere in the middle. And then from there, you actually had physical belts, uh, rotating cogs in other buildings. And that was rotating some, you know, shafts that were rotating other cogs and things like that. And the, the, um, first of all, when, when, you know, people were able to package up electricity into something that's distributable and they were running their own small electricity generators next to these big, big, uh, you know, massive, uh, machines that, that were affecting early factories. And one of the first effects of that was they could reuse 30% of their factories better because it was up to 30% of kind of the space in the factory that was taken up by all the belts right. and shafts. And, and you know, uh, all that movement was producing a lot of um, kind of air movement and a lot of dust and people were getting sick. But now you just had, you know, plug a cable and you no longer have all this kind of bad air and you don't, you don't have employees going sick and, and things like that. So things started changing quite a lot. And then, you know, all of a sudden you had this completely new revolution where you no longer had to operate your own electric generator. You could just plug in and get power from the network. And I think right, right. part of that is, is again, you know, cyclic what's happening in our industry now, where, as you said, we were getting machines. I, I used to make money as a Linux admin a long time ago, you know, and, and I, I could set up my own servers and things like that. I had a company in 2007 
where we were operating our own kind of gaming system and we actually had physical servers and, and, a, and a, in a physical server room with all the LEDs and lights and, and, and clicks <laughs> and things like that. And um, kind of the, 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 around that time, AWS really made it easy to get virtual machines on EC2 and I realized how stupid the whole, you know, let's manage everything ourselves is. Right. Um, but we are getting to the point where, you know, People had to run their own generators, and now you can actually just plug into the electricity network. And of course, there is some standardization. You know, maybe, um, you know, the US still has 110 volts and Europe has 220. And, you know, we did never really get global standardization that. But I assume, you know, before that, every factory could run their own voltage they wanted. And right. Right. You know, people, it was difficult to manufacture for these things, but now you have standardization. It's easier for everybody to plug into the ecosystem and then the whole ecosystem emerged. And I think that's partially what's happening now where things like S3 as an API or, or Lambda as an API is basically the, the, the electric socket in your wall. Right. Right. And that's that that's that whole Wardley Maps idea, like that utility, like things that be, you know, they become utilities. Right. right. And that and that's the thing where uh, if you look at that from a uh, from a, an enterprise standpoint or from a small uh, from a small business standpoint, like if you're a if you're a startup right now and you are ordering servers to put into a data center somewhere like unless you're doing something that's specifically for servers, um, like that's just crazy. Like, I mean, yeah, use I mean, the look, cloud. The, 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 I, uh, this product I mentioned that we built uh, for mind mapping, there's only two of us in the whole company. We do everything from pre-sales to, <laughs> you know, development testing support to everything. And, and we are right. competing with companies that have several orders of magnitude, more employees. And we can actually compete and, and win right. because we can benefit from this ecosystem. And I think this is totally wonderful and amazing. And, and for anybody thinking about starting a product, it's, it's easier to start a product now than ever. And another thing that's kind of totally, I think, crazy about this um, whole serverless thing is how, you know, in effect, we got a bookstore to offer that first. And... Right. Um, I remember, you know, you, you mentioned the word utility. I remember I was uh, an editor of a magazine in 2001 uh, in Serbia, and we were uh, we had licensing with IDG to translate some of their content. And I remember mm -hmm. working on, on this kind of uh, piece from, I think, PC World in, in, in the US, where they were interviewing Hewlett-Packard people about utility computing. Mm -hmm. And people from Hewlett-Packard back then were pr predicting that in a few years' time, companies would not operate their own stuff. They would kind of use utility and things like that. And, and it's totally amazing that, um, you know, in order to reach us uh, over there, that had to be something that was already, you know, evaluated and tested. And there was probably a prototype and things like that. And, and you had right. all these giants... Hewlett-Packard in 2001 was, was an IT giant. Amazon was just up and coming then. Right, right. And, and they were a bookstore then. They were, they were not even anything more than a bookstore. Um, yeah. and, and you had, you know, uh, what, what, a decade later, the, the tables completely turned where HP's... I, I don't know. I don't... Yeah. I think they bought Compaq at some point too. Like, 
Yeah. So, you know, and, and you had all these, all these giants, like, so IBM completely missed it. Like IBM totally missed. Really did. The whole, you know, mobile and web and everything revolution. Oracle completely missed it. They're trying to catch up now, but kind of fat chance. And really we, we are down to, you know, just a couple of massive clouds or whatever that right. means that, you know, we interact with as, as we're interacting with electricity sockets now. Right. And, go, and going back to that utility, um, you know, that sort of utility comparison or not really a comparison. I mean, it is a utility now. Compute um, is offered as a utility. Yes, you can buy and generate compute yourself and you can still do that. And I know a lot of enterprises still will. I think cloud is like 4% of the total IT market or something. You know, it's a fraction of it right now. Um, but just from that utility aspect of it, I mean, from your experience, you mentioned you get two people and you built and that was the, the mind. Is it mindmind.com? Yeah. Um, you know, that you built that with just two people and, and you've got, you know, tons of people using it. And, and but like it just from your experience, um, especially, you know, coming from the world of being a Linux administrator, which, again, I didn't administer it. Well, I guess I sort of was. I mean, I, I I did a lot of work in data centers when in my in my younger days. But coming from that idea and seeing how companies were building in the past and how companies are still building now. Right. Because not every company is using the cloud. Far from it. Um, but not taking advantage of that utility. Like what are, what are those major major disadvantages like where where how badly do you think that's going to slow companies down that are trying to innovate well kind of I can give you a story about mind map you mentioned mind map so um one was it 2018 those intel processor uh vulnerabilities that were discovered I'm, hard right to yes in fact, yep. I'm not entirely sure what the year was kind of a few years ago anyway um right yeah so we, we we got um you know we we, we got a email from a concerned university admin when the second one was discovered. The first one made all the news and kind of a month later, a second one was discovered. And uh, now everybody knew that kind of, you know, they're in panic and things like that. So after the second one was discovered, we got an email from a university admin and universities are big users. They need to protect the data and, and things like that. And he was insisting that we tell him what our plan was for mitigating this thing because he knows we're on the cloud. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on, on European time. He, you know, the, the, the customer was in the U.S., probably somewhere U.S. Pacific because it arrived in the middle of the night. I woke up. I'm still, you know, trying to get my head around and drinking coffee. And there's this yeah. whole sausage CV number that he sent me. I have no idea what it's about. And I, I kind of took that, pasted it into Google to figure out what's, what's going on. The first result I got from Google was that AWS Lambda was already patched. <laughs> right. So, you know, copy paste, my day is done. Um, <laughs> and I, I assume lots and lots of other people were kind of having a totally different conversation with their IT department that day. Right. right. Um, and that's why I said, I think for, for, for products like the one I'm building with, with video and, and for the, the mind map, um, being able to rent operations as a utility, but, but really totally rent ops as a utility, not, not have to worry about anything below my kind of business, unique business level um, right. is really, really important. And um, yes, you know, we can hire people to work on that and it could even end up being kind of slightly cheaper technically, but in terms of my time and, and where my focus goes and, and my interruptions, I think, um, deploying on, on a utility platform, whatever that utility platform is, as long as it's reliable, lets me focus on, on 
adding value where I can actually add value. That that makes my product unique rather than kind of the generic stuff. Right, right. And you mentioned you mentioned the video product that you're working on too. And and um, something that is really interesting, I think, too, about taking advantage of the cloud um, is the scalability aspect of it. So I remember it was maybe 2002, maybe 2003. Um, my local, I, I was I was uh, running my own little consulting company at the time, and my local uh, high school always has like a rivalry football game every Thanksgiving. And I thought it'd be really interesting if I was to stream the audio from the local uh, AM radio station. And so I set up a server in my office um, with like real cast streaming or something running or whatever it was. And I remember thinking, as long as we don't go over 140 subscribers, right, we'll be okay. Anything over that, it'll probably crash or the bandwidth won't be enough or whatever. Um, and that's just one of those things now, like if you're doing any type of, of massive processing or you need bandwidth, I mean, bandwidth alone, um, I mean, I, you know, I remember T1 lines being great. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, now you need a T3 line or something crazy in order to get the bandwidth that you need. Um, I mean, just from that aspect of it, like the ability to scale quickly, like that just seems like such a huge uh, blocker for companies that need to order provision servers, you know, maybe get a utility company to come in and install more bandwidth for them and things like that. That's just that's just stuff that's so far out of scope for building a business to me, at least building a software business yeah, or building yeah. any business. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I, I, I um, when I was doing consulting, I, I did a bit of work for what used to be one of the largest telecoms companies in the world, uh, kind of don't, don't want to name names <laughs> on, the, on the public chat. But um, so uh, somewhere around, you know, 2006, uh, seven, let's say, um, we, we did a software project where uh, they were just needed to deploy it internally. Mm -hmm. And it took them seven months to provision a bunch of virtual machines to deploy it internally. Seven months. Wow. Because of all the red tape and all the bureaucracy and all the, you know, wait for capacity and things like that. And, and this mm -hmm. that's around the time where, you know, Amazon, when, when EC2 kind of became commercially available, I remember working with, uh, with another client and they were waiting for some servers to, to arrive so they can install more capacity. And I remember just turning on the Amazon console. I, I, I didn't have anything useful to run in it then, but just being able right. to start up a virtual machine in about... I think it was less than half an hour, but that was like totally fascinating back then. Right. You know, here's right. a new Linux machine in less than half an hour. You can use it. And it was totally crazy. Now we get into the point where Lambda will start up in less than 10 milliseconds or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, waiting for that kind of capacity is just insane. With the video thing I'm building, um, uh, because of Corona and, and all of this kind of remote teaching stuff and... Um, for some reason, uh, we ended up getting lots of uh, teachers using the product. Mm -hmm. It was uh, one of these half-baked experiments because I didn't have time to build a full user interface for everything. And I realized that lots of people are using PowerPoint to prepare the kind of video. I right. thought, well, how about if I shorten that loop? So just take your PowerPoint and convert it into video. You just type up what you want in the speaker notes. And we'll use mm -hmm. these neural networks to generate audio and things like that. And the teachers like it for, for, for one reason or right. another. Mm -hmm. So we, we had this um, uh, influential blogger uh, from Russia explain it on his video blog. And then it got picked up 
some, my best guess from what I could see from Google Translate, some meet, virtual meeting of teachers of Russia where they recommended mm -hmm. people to try it out. And you can see like, I, you know, I woke up the next day, the metrics went totally crazy because right. a significant portion of teachers in Russia tried my tool overnight yeah. in, a, in a short space of time. And something like that would, you know, I, I couldn't predict it. it. It's lovely. But as you said, you know, as long as we don't go over 100 subscribers, we're fine. If I was in a right. situation like that, the thing would completely crash because it's unexpected. So we'd have a thing that's right. amazingly good for marketing that would be amazingly bad for business because it would crash all our capacity we had or we had to, you know, prepare for a lot more capacity than we needed. But because this right. is all running on, on Lambda Fargate and, and, and all other auto-scaling things, it's just fine. You know, I did, right. no, no sweat at all. It's, it was a lovely thing to see, actually. Right. And you've got, you actually have two problems there. If you're, if you're not running in the cloud or running sort of on-demand compute, is the fact that one, you would have potentially failed, things would have fallen over and you would have lost all those potential customers and you wouldn't have been able Plus to grow. Um, paying customers who are using your systems who've paid you, you know. Right. That's the other thing too. And then, uh, but on the other side of that problem would be, you can't necessarily anticipate some of those things. So what do you do? Over provision and just hope that maybe someday you'll get whatever. I mean, that's that's the crazy thing where the elasticity piece of the cloud to me is such a no brainer because I know people always talk about, well, if you have predictable workloads, like, well, yeah, I mean, I know we have predictable workloads for some things, but if you're in the startup, you're a startup or you're, or you're a business that has like, you know, maybe you pick up some press. I know I would work for a company that we picked up some press. Um, we had 10,000 signups in a matter of like 30 seconds and it completely killed, uh, ki completely killed our backend uh, uh, MySQL database, right? And so like, those are the kind of things where those are hard to prepare for if you're hosting your own, uh, if you're hosting your own. Absolutely, equipment. not even if you're hosting your own. I think, you know, we, we <clears throat> also true. To Lambda, right. we did, we did um, the, the app was deployed on Heroku and that was basically, you need to predict how many virtual machines you need. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's in the cloud, but you know, if, if you're running right. on EC2 and you have your 10, 50, 100 virtual machines, whatever running there, and all of a sudden you get a lot more traffic, well, you know, yeah. will it scale? Will it not scale? Have you designed it to scale like that? And one of the best things that I think Lambda brought as a constraint was forcing people to design this stuff in a way that scales. Yes. So, yes. you know, I, I can deploy stuff on the cloud and make it all a distributed monolith, so it doesn't really scale well. But with Lambda, because kind of it was so constrained when it launched, and this is one thing you, you kind of mentioned, you know, partially we're losing those constraints now, but it was so constrained when it launched, it was really forcing people to design things that were easy to scale. And, right. um, you know, we, we had total isolation. There was no way of sharing things. There was no session stickiness and things like that. And then you had to come up with actually good ways of resolving that. I think one of the kind of most challenging things about serverless is that even a hello world is like a distributed transaction processing system. Right. And people don't get that. You know, they, they, they think about, well, I had this uh, DigitalOcean $5 a month server and it was running my, you know, Rails app correctly. I'm just going to use the same ideas to redesign it in Lambda. And yes, you can, but then you're not going to really get the benefits of all of this other stuff. And right. um, 
if you design it as a, as a kind of massively distributed transaction processing system from the start, then yes, it scales like crazy and, and, and it scales up and down and it's lovely. But I kind of, you know, as, as um, Lambda's maturing, I remember I, I have this slide deck that I've been using since 2016 to talk about Lambda at conferences. <laughs> and every time I, I need to do another talk, I pull it out and I adjust it a bit. And I have this whole Git history of it because I keep, I, I do markdown to slides and I keep the markdown in Git so I can go back. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's this slide about limitations where originally it was, oh, you know, it's only, I don't remember what was the kind of time limitation, but something very short. Five and, minutes. Yeah, it was five minutes know, originally. Right, something yeah. like that. And then it was, you know, no PCI compliance and... You can't, um, the retries are difficult and, and all of this stuff basically became solved. And, and one of the last things that was there, you know, there was like, don't even try to put it in a VPC. Technically you can, but it's going to take 10 right. minutes to start. Now right. that's reasonably okay as well. And um, th there was one, you know, one thing that I remember as, as a really important design constraint was effectively it was a share nothing platform because... Mm -hmm you could not share data between two lambdas running at the same time very right. easily in the same VM. And now that we can connect lambdas to EFS, you effectively can do that as well. You can have right. two lambdas, one writing into an EFS, the other reading the same EFS at the same time. Um, no, no problem at all. You can you know, pump it into a file and the other thing can just tail a file and, and, and get the data out. So we... As, as the platform is maturing, I think we're losing some of these design constraints and, and sometimes constraints breed creativity. Right, right. And yes, yeah. because, you know, you, you still, of course, can design the system to be to be good, but it's going to be interesting to see once, you know, and, and this 15 minute limit that we have in Lambda now is just an artificial number that somebody thought right. just is arbitrary. a good limit. Um, right. And at some point when somebody who's important enough asks AWS to give them half hour lambdas, they will get that. And right. or you know, 24 hour lambdas or or yeah. some some, you know, so it's gonna be interesting to see if Lambda ends up as, as just another way of running kind of EC2 and starting EC2 that's simpler because you don't have to manage the operating system. And I think the big difference we'll get between EC2 and Lambda is what percentage of ops your developers are, are kind of responsible right. for and what percentage of ops Amazon's developers are responsible for. Because if you look at um, all these different offerings that Amazon has like um, LightSail and EC2 and uh, Fargate and um, AWS Batch and, and yeah. Code Deploy and I don't know how many other things you can run code on in Lambda, the big right. difference with Lambda is really at least until very very recently was that apart from your application amazon is responsible for everything but now you mm -hmm. know we're losing design constraints you can put a docker container in so you can't be responsible for the os image as well which is kind of a bit again interesting to look at yeah Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. The pace of innovation is so fast that IT professionals and developers like me have to constantly be learning new skills and new services just to keep up with the latest technologies. Now, it's great to learn something new in a blog post or a YouTube tutorial, but if I really want to upskill, nothing compares to professional training from experts you can trust. With CBT Nuggets, I have access to over 400 courses and 4,000 hours of training. Everything from building serverless apps with Lambda and DynamoDB to certification 
focused training for AWS, Microsoft, Linux, and more. Plus, virtual labs let you practice new skills as you're learning them, which is critical for retention. They have a completely in-house training team that adds 40 hours of content every week, and they have accountability coaching that lets you talk to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan, set goals, and check in to keep you accountable. It's such a valuable service because finishing a course isn't just personally rewarding, it also ensures you've learned those extra little nuances that'll set you up for success. CBT Nuggets has a free learner offer for Serverless Chats listeners. Sign up with a Google account and watch parts of their most popular courses completely free. And everyone who signs up will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription. Start training right away by visiting cbtnuggets.com serverless. I also wonder too, like if you just added, like if you took all those event sources that you can point at Lambda and you add those to Fargate, like what's the difference? Like, you know, we're, it seems like they're just well, merging yeah, into the moment, two very similar products. At the moment, you know, Fargate, so the video, video build platform, the last step runs in Fargate because, uh, you know, people are uploading things that are massive, massive, massive for, for video processing and just they don't finish in 15 minutes. So I have right. to run it on Fargate. And, and the big difference is kind of the container I packaged up for Fargate takes about 40 seconds to actually deploy. Yeah. So a new new event at the moment with kind of the stuff I've packaged in Fargate takes about 40 seconds to deploy. I can optimize that, but I can't optimize it too much. So, you know, right. Fargate right. is still order of magnitude of tens of seconds to, to process an event. And... Um, I think as Fargate gets faster and as Lambda gets more of these capabilities, it's going to be very difficult to tell them apart, I think. And, right. and right. you know, with Fargate, you're intended to manage the container image yourself. Uh, so you're responsible for patching software. You're responsible for patching OS vulnerabilities and, and things like that. Um, with Lambda, Amazon, unless you use an image for, for a Docker Unless you use a container image, Amazon is responsible for that. But, you know, they, they're coming closer. And I, I did, um, you know, when, when looking at this um, video build thing for the first time, I was actually comparing code. I, I was considering using code build for that because code build is also a way to run things on demand and, and containers. Right. And you actually can get quite decent machines with code build. Um, and it's also event driven and, and Fargate is event driven, AWS batch is event driven and, and all of these things, you know, are converging to each, each other. And really, you know, where AWS is famous for having 10 products that do the same thing effectively and you can't tell right. them apart. And maybe that's where we'll end. Right. right. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering too, like the, the, the thing that was great about Lambda, at least for me, like you said, the shared nothing architecture where it sort of was like, you almost didn't have to rely on anything other than the event that came in and the processing of that Lambda function. Um, and if you designed your systems well, right, you may have some bottleneck up front, but especially if you used distributed transactions and you used async invocations of, uh, of downstream functions, um, you know, where you could basically take some data that you needed to pass into it, and then you wouldn't necessarily need that to communicate with anything other than itself to process that data. Um, the scale there was massive, right? Like you could just keep scaling and scaling and scaling. You know, as you add things like EFS and, and that, that adds constraints in terms of the number of transactions and connections that that can make and all those sort of things. You know, do these things 
do they become less reliable? Like, you know, by by allowing it to do more, are we building systems that are less reliable because we're not using some of those, you know, tried and true constraints that were there? Uh, possibly, but you know, every time you add a, a new moving part, you you create one more potential point of failure there. And I think, right. um, for me, one of the big lessons when I was working you know, on, I, I spent a few years working on very high throughput transaction processing systems. That's why kind of this whole thing re, re, rings a bell a lot. A lot of it really was how do you figure out what type of messages you send and, and where you send them? And, mm-hmm. you know, the craze of these messages and distributed transaction processing systems in early 2000s created this whole craze of enterprise service buses later that came. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we now have this, uh, what was it called? It's not called enterprise service bus. It's called event bridge or something like that. Event bridge, yes. But that's yep. effectively an enterprise service bus. It's just the enterprise is the Amazon cloud, you know. And um, so the, the, the big problem with or the big challenge in designing things like that is decoupling. And, and it's realizing that when you have a complicated system like that, stuff is going to fail. And especially when we were operating our own hardware, you know, stuff is going to fail badly occasionally. And you need to right. not bring the whole house down where some storage starts working a bit slower. So you kind of create circuit breakers, you create uh, layers and layers of stuff that disconnect things. And I, I remember, you know, when we were looking originally at, at lambdas and trying to get ahead around that and experimenting, well, should one lambda call another or should one lambda, you know, right. not call another and things like that. I, I, I realized like, let's say for now, we, we you know, un, until we realize we, we want to do something else, a, a lambda should only ever talk to SNS, and nothing else, and you know, or, or SQS or something like that. So when, when one lambda completes, just kind of chuck a message somewhere, and we need right. to design these messages to be good so that we can decouple different parts of the process. And so far, you know, that, that, that that's held true as a constraint. I think very, very few times we have one lambda calling another, mostly when we re- actually need a synchronous response back. And for security reasons, we wanted to isolate something to a single lambda. Mm-hmm. But that's effectively just, you know, a, a, a black box security isolation. But in a sense, creating these isolation layers through messages, through, through queues, through topics becomes a fundamental part of designing these systems. I remember speaking at a, at a conference to um, somebody, I, I, I forgot the name of the person who uh, was um, talking about Erlang. And mm. He was presenting after me and he said, look, you know, I, I can relate to a lot of what you said. And in kind of in the Erlang community, basically, they often talk about, apparently, I'm, I'm not an Erlang programmer. He told me that in, in the Erlang community, talk about kind of designing the protocol being the biggest challenge. Once you design mm-hmm. the protocol between your components, the messages, you know, who sends what where, um, you can recover from almost any other design flaw. Because it's decoupled, so if you've made a mess in one lambda, you can kind of redesign that lambda, throw it away, rewrite it, decouple things in a different way. If if the global protocol is kind of good, you get a lot of flexibility. If you mess up the protocol for for communication, then nothing's going to save you at the end. And I think that's part of, you know, now we have EFS and lambda can talk to an EFS, you know, should... The, this lambda talk directly to an EFS or should this lambda just send some messages to a topic and then some yeah. other lambdas that are maybe reserved, maybe, uh, you know, more constrained talk to, to EFS. And, and again, 
Um, the platforms evolved quite a lot over the last few years. Um, one thing that is particularly useful in that regard is the SQS FIFO queues that came out um, mm-hmm. last year, I think. Or, or I don't know, it's like with Corona. Whenever it was. <laughs> I don't know it's last year or two years ago. You know, we were kind of... So, but one of the things that kind of that allows us to do is really... Um, run lots and lots of lambdas in parallel where you can guarantee that no two lambdas access the same kind of business entity mm-hmm. or, or that you have at the same time. So, for example, for this mind mapping thing, we have you, lots and lots of people modifying lots and lots of files in parallel, but we need to aggregate a single map. So, if you know we have 50 people over here working on a single map and 60 people over there working right. on a different map, Aggregation can run in parallel, but I never, ever, ever want two people modifying the same map, their aggregation to run in parallel. And for Lambda, right. that was a massive challenge. You had to put Kinesis between Lambda and, and other Lambdas and things like that. And Kinesis is provisioned capacity. It costs a lot. It doesn't auto-scale. But now with uh, SQS FIFO queues, you can just send a message and you can say the kind of uh, FIFO ID is, is this map ID that we have. Yep. Which means that SQS can run thousands of lambdas in parallel, but they will never run more than one lambda for the same map ID at the same time. Right, right. And kind of designing your protocols like that becomes what's, you know, how you decouple one end of your app that's massively scalable and massively parallel and another end of your app that where you have some, you know, reserved capacity or, or limits. Like for, for this kind of video thing, you know, we have... Um, the, the original idea of that was letting me build marketing videos easier. And, you know, I, I can't get rid of this accent. I, unfortunately, you know, my everything I do sounds like I'm threatening somebody to blackmail them. And <laughs> so I'm like, a, you know, cheap Bond villain. And, and um, th- that's not good, but I can't do anything else. And, you know, I can get right. other people to do it for me. And... We used to do that, but then that becomes a big problem when you want to modify a, a tiny thing. So we paid this lady to, to professionally record audio for a marketing video that we needed. And then six months later, we want to change one screen. And now the narration is, is incorrect. And right. we paid the same woman again, same equipment, same person. Uh, but the sound is totally different because it's two different totally different. So you right. can't just kind of stitch it up. So then you end up like, okay, do we go and you know pay for the whole thing again? And 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 I realized kind of the the neural network t- text to speech has advanced so much that it can do English better than I can. You're, you're a native English speaker, so you know you can probably defeat those machines, but I can't. And I don't know if I, I don't know if I could. <laughs> and, and you know, they're I, pretty. I, I, they're I, pretty I, good now. It's kind of scary. I started looking at like, well, you know, why don't I just kind of put stuff in Markdown and, and, and use Markdown to generate videos and things like that. But all of these things, I, I kind of, uh, they, you get quota limits still. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I thought we were limited on Google. Google gave us something like five requests per second in parallel. Or, 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 and yeah. and they, I, I, it took me really a long time to even raise these these quotas and things like that. So I don't want to have lots of people requesting stuff and then in parallel trashing this other thing over there. We need to create these layers of running things in a decent limit. And I think that's where right. I think designing the protocol for this distributed system becomes really important. 
Right. Yeah. And and I, I want to go back to because I think you bring up a really good point just about <clears throat> sort of a, a different type of architecture or the architectural design of, of decoupling systems and, and sort of these event driven things. And you mentioned, you know, a Lambda function processes something and sends it to SQS or sends it to SNS so that it can sort of do sort of a fan out pattern or in the case of the of the FIFO queue, you know, doing an ordered an ordered pattern for uh, for you know sequ- sequential processing, which those are all great patterns. And even and even things that AWS has done, such as add things like Lambda destinations. So now if you run an asynchronous Lambda function, um, you, you still have to write some code or you used to have to write some code that said when this is finished processing, now call some other component. And there's just another another opportunity for failure there, right? And so they basically said, well, if it succeeds, then you can actually just forward it off to one of these other services automatically and we'll handle all of the retries and all the failures and all that kind of stuff. And those things have been um, have been added in to basically give you um, that sort of warm and fuzzy feeling that if an event doesn't reach where it's supposed to go, that some sort of cloud trickery will click in, uh, you know, will kick in and, and, uh, and make sure that gets processed. But what that has introduced, I think, is sort of a cognitive overload for a lot of developers that are designing these systems because you're no longer just writing a script that does X, Y, and Z and makes a few database calls. Now you're saying, okay, I've got to write a script that can massively scale and, and take the, the transactions that I need to maybe parallelize or that I maybe need to queue or delay or throttle or whatever and pass those down to another subsystem. And then that subsystem has to pick those up and maybe that has to parallelize those or maybe there are failure modes in there and I've got all these other things I have to think about. So just that effect on your average developer. I, I mean, I think you and I think about these things where I mean, I would consider myself to be a cloud architect if that's uh, if that's a thing. Um, but essentially, do you you know do you see this being a uh, I guess a wall for for a lot of developers and and something that really requires quite a bit of education to ramp them up to be able to start designing these systems? Well, I, th- I think kind of you know if you look at well, one of the topics we we touched upon is the cyclic nature of things, and I think you know we're going back to where. Moving from uh, apps working on a single machine to client-server architectures was a massive brain melt for for a lot of people. And, and three-tier right. architectures later, you know, when we, not just client-server, but three-tier architectures ended up, you know, with with their own um, host of problems and, and design problems and things like that. And that's where a lot of these kind of architectural patterns and design patterns emerged, like circuit breakers and 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 things like that. So I think there's. There's a whole body of knowledge there for people to research. It's not something that's entirely new. Um, right. And uh, I, I think you can get started with Lambda quite easily and, and um, not necessarily make a mess, but make something that won't necessarily scale well and then start improving it later. And I think that, that's why I, I, I was mentioning that kind of airline discussion where as long as the protocol makes sense, Right. You you can kind of uh, salvage almost anything later, and um, designing that protocol is important. But then we go into kind of good software design, and I think um, teaching people how to do that is something that every ten years we have to you know re- recycle and reinvent and and, and figure it out uh, because people don't like to read books from more than ten years ago, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> You know, all of this stuff like designing fault tolerant systems and and uh, fail safe systems and, and things that there's, there's a ton of books about that from you know twenty right. years ago, from ten years ago, and um, Amazon uh, 
Now, you know, for, for people listening to you and me, uh, they, they probably, don't, you know, use Amazon more for computer than they use for getting books. But Amazon has these all these books. Use it for, you know, <laughs> what Amazon was originally intended for and, and get some books right. there. Um, and, and read through this stuff. And I think looking at design of distributed systems and, and, and stuff like that becomes really, really critical for lambdas. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so we've got a few minutes left, and I'd love to go back um, to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, and that was sort of everything moving on to a few of these major cloud providers. Um, and, and and one of the things, you know, you've got scale, right? Scale is a, a problem. We talked about, oh, we can spin up as many VMs as we want to, and now with serverless, we you know have you know unlimited capacity. Really, I know we didn't say that, but I think that's the general idea, right? Like the the, the cloud just provides this sort of yeah, unlimited mean, capacity. Besides, it's not unlimited. Yeah, well, so and and that's and that's sort of my point here, where. Every major cloud provider that I've been involved with and I've heard the stories of um, where you start to to move the needle at all, um, there's always an essay that reaches out to you and really wants to understand what your usage is going to be and what your patterns are going to be. And that's because they need to make sure that where you're running your applications that they provision enough capacity because there is not enough capacity or there's not unlimited capacity oh, yeah. in the cloud. So it's physically limited, you know, there's there's only so much right. buildings where you can right. data centers you know, on, on, on the surface of earth, you know, that's uh <laughs> And that's and that's and I guess that's where my my question comes in because we you always hear these things about uh, like lock in like right? oh like well serverless you know if you use Lambda you're going to be locked in um, and and again well if you're using Oracle you're locked in or using MySQL you're locked in or using any of the other things you're sort of locked in physically you know there's a key and, and a lock right but but this is this idea of being sort of locked in not to a a specific cloud provider but just locked into the cloud in general and relying on the cloud to do that scaling for you like where do you think the limitations there are i think you know again go, going back to cy cyclic 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 the pc revolution started when a lot more edge compute was needed than kind of on, on mainframes and people wanted to get stuff done on, on their own devices. And I think right. probably we are going to see, if we do ever see the limitations of this and it goes into the next cycle, my best guess is going to be driven by lots of tiny devices connected to, to cloud, not necessarily uh, computers as, as we know computers today. I, I pulled out some research preparing for this from IDC they are predicting basically uh, from 18.3 zettabytes of, of data needed for IoT in 2019 to be 73.1 zettabytes by 2025. So that's like yeah. times three <laughs> in a space of six years. And, right. you know, if you went to Amazon now and told them, like, you need to have three times more data space in three years, I, I'm not sure how they would react to that. Right. Uh, and, right. and, you know, the, the, this stuff, um, you know, everything is taking more and more data and everything is more and more connected to the cloud. There was, um, uh, and, and the impact of something like that going down now is becoming totally crazy. There was um, a case in 2017 where S3, uh, started kind of getting a bit more latency than usual in um, US East 1 in, I think, February 28th or something like that. And um, 
the there, there were cases where people couldn't turn the lights on in their houses because right. uh, the management software was, you know, working on S3 and, and depending on S3, right. expecting S3 to be uh, indestructible. Last year in November, Kinesis kind of uh, pretty much went offline as, as far as yep. everybody else outside AWS is concerned for about 15 hours, I think. Yep. And, you know, there were cases of pe- pe- people on Twitter complaining that they can't go back into their house because their, their smart <laughs> lock is no longer that smart. And I think, right. you know, we are getting to, to places where there will be more need for, for compute on the edge. And, and this whole, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, there's going to be a lot more demand for data centers and, and cloud power. And, and I think that's going to keep going on for the next five, 10 years, but then people will realize they've hit some limitation of that and they're going to move, start moving towards the edge. And we're going from mainframe back into client-server computing, I think. Um, right, right. It was, you know, we, we, we're getting these products now. People, I, I, I assume most of your listen, listeners have seen one, like all these fancy ubiquity Wi-Fi thingies that are costing hundreds of dollars and they look like pieces of... Uh, furniture that's just kind of sitting discreetly right. on your wall. And um, th- there was a massive security breach yesterday published. Uh, somebody took their AWS keys and took all the customer data and everything. I, I kind of think so. Um, and they were able to, you know, the, the big advantage over all ugly routers was that it's just like a thin piece of glass that sits on your wall and it's amazing and it right. looks good. But the reason why they could do a very kind of thin piece of glass is everything else, you know, that, the, the minimal amount of software is running on that piece of glass, the rest is running in the cloud. And right. the, it's not just kind of locking in terms of, is it on Amazon or, or, or Google? It's that it's so tightly coupled with something totally outside of your home yeah. where your network router needs Amazon to be alive now. Um, and a very specific region of Amazon where, you know, everybody's been deploying for the last, Right. 15 years and, and it's it's running out of capacity uh, very often, not very often, but often enough. So right. that, 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 that there's some really interesting questions that I guess, you know, we, we, we'll see answered over the next five, 10 years. And I think IoT will drive, we're, we're on the verge of IoT, I think, exploding because people are trying to come up with these new products that didn't even, you know, you, you wouldn't even think before that, You'd have smart shoes right. and, and, and smart whatnot, you know, smart glasses and things like that. And when right. that God gets into consumer technology, we're no longer going to have five or 10 computer devices per person. We'll have dozens and dozens of computer devices. So, you know, I, I guess think about it this way. 15 years ago, how many computer devices were you carrying with, with yourself? You, probably mobile right. phone and, and laptop. Probably not mm-hmm. more. Now... In the headphones you have there, that's Bose. Watch, you, you, right. you have you have a microprocessor in the headphones. You have you know your watch. You have uh, a ton of other stuff carrying with you. That's kind of all low power, all doing a bit of processing there. But you know a lot of that processing is probably happening on the cloud somewhere for some. A right. lot or, or or 
it's just sending it's just sending um you know data right like it's just sending like hey here's here's information and and you're right i mean for me you know i've got my i got my apple watch my um my thermostat is connected to wi-fi into the cloud my um you know my wife just bought a humidifier um for our living room that is connected to wi-fi uh and i'm assuming it's sending data to the cloud i'm not 100 percent sure but the the question is i don't know why we need to keep track of like the humidity in my in my living room but um but that's the kind of thing too where like you mentioned from security uh, security standpoint like I have a bunch of AWS access keys on my computer that I send over the network, and I'm assuming they're uh, assuming they're secure. But if I've got another device that can access my network, and somebody hacks something on the cloud side, and then they can get in, I mean, it it gets really dangerous. But you're right the 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 amount of data that we are now generating and compute that we're using in the cloud for probably some really dumb things like you know humidity in my living room, um, you know. Is that going to get to a point where I mean, you said there's going to be a, a a limitation, like you know, five years, ten years, whatever it is. So, what what does the cloud do then? What what does the cloud do when it can no longer, um, you know, keep up with the pace of of these, uh, uh, you know, IoT devices? Well, I mean, you know, if, if history is repeating, and we'll see if history is repeating, people will start getting throttled, and all of a sudden, you know, your 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 uh, unlimited. Supply of, of lambdas will no longer be unlimited supply of lambdas. It will be uh, something that you have to reserve up front and, and pay up front. And who knows? We'll, 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 we'll see where we get there. You know, or we get right. things that we have with power networks, like you had a Texas power cut there that was completely uh, oh, right. severe. And, 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 you know, the, you get a IT cut. I don't know. We will see. The more we go into utility, the more we we'll start seeing parallels between compute and power networks. And then, you know, maybe power networks are something that you can um, look at and relate to. And that's why I think the, the, the next cycle is probably going to be some equivalent of, of client server computing re-emerging. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I got one more question for you. And this is just sort of something where sort of a, a maybe a little bit of a you know, tongue in cheek question, but because we talked about a little bit, we talked about sort of the merging of Lambda and of, uh, you know, Fargate and some of these other things. But just from a from your perspective, serverless in five years from now, um, where do you see that going? Do you see that just sort of becoming the main this idea of utility computing on demand computing without setting up servers and managing ops and some of these other things? Do you see that as sort of like um, the future of serverless and it's just sort of becoming just sort of the way we build applications or do you think that you know that you think that it's got a different path so uh there was a tweet uh by simon wardley you mentioned simon wardley earlier in, in the talk there was a tweet a few a few days ago where he mentioned some data i'm not sure where he pulled it from uh so this might be you know unverified or it might be but generally simon knows what he's talking about that right um Amazon itself is, is deploying roughly 50% of all new apps they're building on, on serverless. Mm -hmm. um, so I think five years from now, um, that way of running stuff, I'm not sure if it's Lambda or some you know, new service that Amazon starts and gives it some even more confusing name that runs in parallel to everything. But that kind of stuff where... Uh, the operator takes care of all the ops, which they really should be doing, uh, right. is, is, uh, is going to be the default way of, of getting utility compute out. Mm -hmm. 
And I think a lot of these other things, you know, will probably remain useful for specialist use cases uh, where you can't really deploy it in that way or you need more stability or it's not transient and, and things like that. But I think we'll get probably, my, my best guess is, first of all, get, we'll get lambdas that run for longer. Mm-hmm. And I, I assume that after we get lambdas that run for longer, we'll probably get some ways of controlling routing to lambdas because you already can set up pre-provisioned lambdas and uh, hot lambdas and and reserved capacity and things like that. When you have reserved capacity and you have longer running lambdas, the next next logical thing there is to have session stickiness and routing and and things like that. Yeah, right. And I think we'll, we'll get... Uh, a lot of the stuff that you know you it was really complicated to do uh, earlier, and you had to run EC2 instances or you had to run complicated networks of services. You'll be able to do in Lambda, and, and Lambda is. A, I wouldn't be surprised if they launch a totally new service with some you know AWS cloud uh, socket, whatever you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So something, something, you know. Uh, uh, that that is a reimplementation of the same principle, just in a different way. Um, that becomes a, a default way of running uh, compute for, for lots of people. And I think um, GPUs are still a big limit. I, I don't think you can run GPU utility anywhere mm, now. Right. And and that that's limiting for a whole host of, of um, use cases. And I think. Again, that, that's it, it's not like they don't have the technology to do it. It's just they probably didn't get around to doing it yet. But mm-hmm. I assume in five years' time, you'll be able to do GPUs on demand and, and, and processing in GPUs and, and things like that. And, and yeah, I think that it will just become, you know, the, the buzzword itself will, will lose really any special meaning. And that's going to just right. be a way of running stuff. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, well, listen, Goiko, thank you so much for spending the time uh, chatting with me. Uh, always great to, to talk with you. Um, hey, if people if people want to get in touch with you, find out more about what you're doing, how do they do that? So I'm very easy to find online uh, because there's not a lot of people called Goiko. So you <laughs> type Goiko into Google, you'll find me and, and kind of Goiko.networks, Goiko.com works, Goiko.org works and, and all these other things. I was lucky enough to, you know, get all those domains Right. And that's that's uh, G-O-J-K-O. Yes, for people yes. Who G-O-J-K-O. Spelling, right? Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks for inviting me. This was a blast. All right. Yeah. And, and make sure you check out, um, you, you mentioned Narakeet. That's the the uh, the, the slide uh, to, to speech. Yeah, for, for developers thing. that want to build videos without uh, hustle and right. want to put right. videos in continuous integration and, and kind of things like that, Narakeet, that's like Parakeet with an N for right. narration. Right. Check, check that out. And thanks thanks for plugging Yeah, it. awesome. And then check out MimeUp as well. Um, awesome stuff. So I'll get all the stuff in the show notes. Thanks again, Goiko. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Goiko Adzik for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 97. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at 
offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.